Welcome. We're excited to have you with us today uh, for this public conversation that is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the University of Minnesota School of Public Affairs. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School, and I'm director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. And I want to welcome you to a virtual version of um, a series of public conversations that we have about uh, public events. Health reform has been one of the, the enduring topics, and we are grateful for the sponsorship of Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota and the terrific support from my good friend, um, uh, Scott, um, who uh, works and runs the public uh, affairs division at, um, at Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, I just wanna mention one of our traditions uh, here is to have questions. So we wanna encourage you to submit questions. You can see at the bottom of the page, uh, there's a Q&A section Submit questions. We're going to get to many as we possibly can. Um, and I'm very excited by our program today. Um, we are going to have a terrific conversation about where we are in our health insurance system, uh, which is teetering on the edge of collapse. And we'll get into that in a minute. I'm delighted to have Michelle Benson with us, who is the lead uh, person in the Republican Party in the Minnesota legislature. Uh, she was elected in 2010 to the Minnesota uh, Senate. She represents District 31, which is the northern part of the Twin Cities and Anoka and other cities. She's a deputy majority leader um, and a terrific person to have these sort of conversations with, as you will see. We also have with us my good friend Joel Ario, who uh, is a Minnesotan, born and bred in Minnesota, and he loves to come back, and we're grateful for that. He was a health, health insurance commissioner in the states of Oregon and Pennsylvania, and then was recruited to become what was known as the healthcare czar uh, in the Obama administration to start up their marketplaces. Uh, he's well known around the country as an expert on health insurance markets, nonprofit, profit, and government. So we're very fortunate to have Joel Ario uh, with us. Um, Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Larry. Um, I want to start by uh, setting the scene of where we are, and maybe you'll feel free to modify it. After World War II, we uh, set up in this country through tax exemptions and other things, a system that uh, tied health insurance to workplace and particularly the larger middle-sized companies. By the time we get to the 1960s, about three quarters of Americans are getting their health insurance through the workplace. That was the way it was done. Um, and that has continued, though it's, it's kind of tapered off a little bit. Uh, it's down, still a majority, but it's less than what it had been. Now we get the coronavirus hitting and it has had a huge impact, obviously in employment, which is, uh, you know, unemployment is now shot up. It's, it's approaching 40 million people. Um, and because folks rely on the, their job for health insurance, it's led to about 27 million people losing their health insurance. Some estimates go as high as 35 million 
uh, could possibly lose their health insurance. Uh, so this has become a tremendous uh, crisis uh, for the um, health insurance system in America. Now you combine that with the fact that the coronavirus uh, has introduced um, enormous uncertainty and also medical bills for those who get sick and costs associated with uh, testing. You've got the hospitals and other providers who are now worried about whether they're gonna get paid. Is our healthcare system and our health insurance system in crisis? Uh, yes, it is, Larry. Um, and, and I think it starts with, as you said, the employment-based system, which is 160 million people today. That's roughly one out of every two Americans that gets their health care um, through their employer or they're dependent on somebody who gets health care through their employer. And as you said, 40 million of those folks are now out of work. And that really uh, raises a lot of question about what will happen to what we call ESI, employer-sponsored uh, insurance. There are strategies for continuing to maintain the employment-based system, even in the face of that high unemployment. Uh, the most prominent of those is a proposal from uh, that it was in the bill that the House passed last week called the HEROES Act. This does not yet have Senate buy-in at the federal level, but that bill would uh, uh, put 100% subsidies in place for COBRA coverage. COBRA is the kind of coverage you get if you leave employment and you want to maintain the same policy you had. You can do that by paying the full cost of the policy yourself, and you can maintain that for anywhere from 18 to 36 uh, months. This bill that's in the Congress would uh, fully subsidize, 100% subsidize that COBRA coverage um, through the uh, uh, emergency. So it's a way of creating, if you will, a virtual ESI uh, system. Uh, and it, it does need to be at 100% because the employment-based coverage is the most expensive coverage that we have uh, in this country. Um, most people can't afford it. Back in 2009, um, uh, they also subsidized COBRA coverage as part of that um, uh, stimulus package with the 2009 recession. There they provided 65% subsidies, so almost two thirds paid by the federal government. And still the take up was pretty small, like 15% uh, take up. So that's why the proposal is for 100%. But again, it's expensive coverage. We'll come back around to that in just a, a minute. So it would cost a pretty penny. Uh, to do that, and it wouldn't cover everybody still. There would be people who are now no longer attached to their employer. If their employer's gone out of business, the employer doesn't even have the policy anymore. So it's, it's far from a perfect solution, but I will say it's the preferred solution from some of the big stakeholders uh, in the system, the hospitals, the pharma companies, some insurers, um, because it's the most stable, long-lasting uh, part of our, uh, of our system. So that's one kind of solution to the healthcare system in crisis. There are two others that's interesting. We have a very you know, segmented uh, healthcare system. So this is kind of stressing all parts of that system. All of, in different parts of it could be solutions in different, in different respects, depending on who has the, uh, the power to achieve their solution. So moving from ESI to the other end of the continuum, the, the, the Medicare system, um, we have Bernie Sanders who says this crisis proves that um, our segmented system is not helpful and we really ought to get to single payer where we have a single system that can 
respond to a crisis like this and cover everybody at a fair price and uh, and and uh, you know eliminate all the different segments we have. He's very fond of talking about the inefficiency of hundreds of insurance companies and literally thousands, if not millions, of different uh, policies out there. Um, has not gotten a real uh, traction with that in in, a, in any kind of serious proposal in the Congress, but there are remnants of it in a proposal. It's kind of interesting. The uh, the Trump administration considered whether to open healthcare.gov, which is the ACA uh, marketplace that operates in 38 states. They considered whether to open that uh, for a special enrollment period for the uninsured, as many state-based marketplaces like Minnesota, like Minsure did. And ultimately, although HHS recommended that solution, many people think it was the president himself who said, I don't want an ACA type solution here. So instead, he opted for, interestingly, a Medicare solution. And it was kind of fun. Oh, about four or five weeks ago, Secretary Azar was with the president in the White House and was explaining. It sounded like he was channeling Bernie Sanders. He said, well, the problem with the, dealing with the uninsured through the uh, ACA marketplaces is that it's very inefficient. You have to find an insurance company. You have to sign up with the insurance company. You have to go through a lot of rigmarole. Then you have to file claims. You get the claims paid by the insurance company, offering exactly the critique that Bernie did. So he said, we're going to do something much simpler. We're going to provide Medicare for everybody who is uninsured for their COVID expenses. It wasn't Medicare for everything, um, but for their COVID uh, testing expenses especially. And he said, it'll be much more efficient. We will set the price. It'll be the Medicare price. And uh, to prevent the hospitals um, and the other providers from charging the consumers what they couldn't get from the government, he said, we'll prohibit what's called balanced billing. We'll prohibit the hospitals and the other providers from taking any other payment from anyone else. Um, so that is the system that we have today at the federal level for people who are uninsured and hospitals and other providers that want to serve that population have to file claims with CMS and they get paid at Medicare rates and they have to agree not to bill the consumer for any additional costs. But here's where you start to see the, the differences in our system and the differences in the price structures. Um, there have been estimates of, you know, what are the costs of commercial coverage versus Medicare coverage. And the studies are show that's roughly twice as expensive for commercial coverage in, in the, on the low end, and sometimes even four or five times as expensive for commercial coverage on the high end. So when you start looking at COVID expenses, the studies that have been put out there, one study estimated it would be 72,000 per case on the commercial side, and another study from FAIR, that was something by Covered California. Another study came in from Fair Health said, no, if uh, our way of looking at these claims, what is allowed by the insurance companies cuts that in half to 38,000. And then they said over the last 10 years for similar cases, the Medicare price would be 10,000. So from 72 to 38 to 10, and the Medicaid price would be 75 thousand dollars for an average COVID case. So you see the range of expenses and you can start to see why the hospitals and pharma in particular prefer, you know, uh, the ESI system to the Medicare uh, system. Give you another example on that pricing issue, testing. Testing is going to be a huge issue for this country. We're talking about millions of tests a week, you know, if, if we get to the level that many people think we need to get to. So the price per test 
matters, Medicare right now pays either $50 for a simple test or $100 for an expensive test. The law currently, the way the law was written by Congress around COVID, it allows the private labs for other people outside of Medicare and Medicaid, it allows them to create their own price. All they have to do to have a price is publicly posted on a website. And then that is the price that insurers have to pay them. And those prices are sometimes over $1,000 compared to 100 uh, for Medicare. So you can see again, how the differences in the pricing really affects the cost of our healthcare and why we do have the most expensive uh, system in the world. Of course, on the other side of that, as I'm sure Senator Benson will be quick to point out, um, many hospitals probably can't make a go of it if they're getting, you know, 10,000 for Medicare hospitalization instead of 38,000 or even 72,000. And on testing, the same thing, the labs may not offer up the testing if they're not going to be paid more than the $100 Medicare rate. So, you know, you can't just dictate a price and expect it to work. You have to have something that works in the marketplace. But it starts to illustrate the complexities. And then finally, it's kind of interesting, last point on this, if you go, if you look at the third leg of our system, you got employment-based coverage over here, you have Medicare on the other end of the continuum, then you have the ACA programs kind of in the middle, Medicaid, big safety net program, 70 million people now, expanded quite a bit under the ACA, and then also the marketplaces that, that you've already referenced. And that could have been the, the solution that the country went to instead of either you know, ESI or, or, and it will be the solution if ESI isn't um, replenished through the, through the COBRA solution. People are now estimating that if, if ESI isn't fixed through COBRA, that as many as 20 million more people will be, end up in Medicaid, um, and as many as 10 million more, that would double the marketplaces, the individual market could end up in the individual market. It's interesting though, you know, the ACA has become more popular but it is still not the go-to place for the, at least for the Congress so far. They've gone either to ESI or they've gone to Medicare, but if neither of those works, we'll fall back into that system. And that's interesting. You look at the prices there, they're somewhere between the prices that, that the, uh, the commercial carriers pay to the providers under that system are more than Medicaid, but less than uh, commercial rates. And they also tend, those plans tend to have fairly narrow networks. So you're a little more restricted in what doctors you can go to. And they also um, tend to have relatively high cost sharing to keep premiums down. So again, not the ideal system. Most people, the ideal system, people like to get jobs with large employers so they get the very best insurance coverage that money can buy. Um, and, and they prefer that to the, to the ACA coverage. But I, I can tell you that if we have to solve the country's problems and we don't have unlimited money, the money will go a lot further um, under a Medicaid structure, Medicare structure, or an ACA structure than it does under an ESI structure. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how all this unfolds over the next, uh, uh, whatever period. We don't, none of us know how long this period of emergency will last, but at some point we'll figure out which one of these systems was the most helpful and most successful in, in helping us get through this uh, pandemic. That's very helpful. So in other words, the, the health insurance system is in crisis because the coronavirus has led to this swelling of unemployment. It's knocked people off their health insurance. And now the question is, how does Washington respond? It's got three choices. One is to prop up the current employer-based 
health insurance system. The second to go to the other extreme is to go for Bernie Sanders' uh, empl- uh, single-payer Medicare for all approach. And the third is this kind of hybrid of the Affordable Care Act of doing Medicaid through the government or providing subsidies for people to go th- back into the private insurance market. I want to ask you um, a couple questions to follow up. Um, when you look at Congress and you think of these three different options and you think of um, the current balance of power in Congress and then you have a Republican in the White House, which one do you think is doable? Well, if you looked at the, the lobbying strength behind the COBRA proposal, you'd think it's going to pass, right? Because you have the largest stakeholders in the healthcare system, the hospitals, the provi- other providers, the uh, drug companies, other people who provide services in the healthcare sector. They clearly prefer commercial rates. And you then look at big business and big labor, they also prefer that system in many cases. Um, employers are starting to scratch their heads a little bit about how much, why do we have to pay two, three, four times as much as Medicare um, for the for the same coverage in a hospital. But generally, there's a pretty broad group of broad support. There's a reason why we still have 160 million people on employer-based uh, what coverage. about What about the Republicans? Where do they fall on this? Um, they tend to support that that system. I mean, it used to be, I mean, Senator Benson obviously speaks better for the Republicans than I could, but the Republicans used to be more critical of this system. They said, let's make the system individualized, sort of along the lines of what Obamacare does. They then pulled out of Obamacare when it actually passed. They used to favor, though, a system of individual coverage where people had their own money in the game and employers weren't providing the coverage for employees, but as things have have progressed in the healthcare system, uh, I think there are many Republicans today who are a little worried about the instability of a system that didn't have the employer pillars. So there is less criticism today. I at least hear less criticism from Republicans of the employer-based system and more kind of a statement of, you know, that is the bulwark against Medicare for all. The worst thing would be Medicare for all. And so we, we need to support the employer-based system today in order to prevent Medicare from all. That tends to be kind of where, I'd be interested in what Senator Benson thinks of that, but that tends to be where I see the discussion going. Yes, we'll, we'll bring in Senator Benson in a moment, but just to be clear, the choices facing national Republicans in Congress and the White House is single payer, which is a no. Uh, the, the Affordable Care Act, which is also a no because that's what President Obama established, and uh, I'm not noticing a whole lot of love there. Um, and then you've got the employer-sponsored uh, insurance system. The question there is, uh, do you prop it up during an emergency, um, or do you let it uh, take its own course? And what I'm hearing you say is that given those um, choices, that there could be a coalition of Democrats and Republicans in Congress who would support some form of extending COBRA. Yes, yes, some form of extending COBRA. And then I think it's very important to say, if they don't get that done, and right now it doesn't look great in terms of the dynamics between the House and the Senate, then the default will be Obamacare. They don't have to change the law for Obamacare to be the default solution. There already is in law that if you have no income, if your income's below 100% of the poverty level, you are eligible for Medicaid. There isn't, that's an entitlement now under Obamacare. It, it, uh, and, and in states that have expanded Medicare, it's, it's, it's higher 
Um, so, uh, well, actually, some states that haven't expanded Medicaid lower than 102, but you have some entitlement to Medicare at a, and Medicaid at a very low rate, and then you do have entitlement up to 400% of poverty for some level of subsidy under Obamacare already. So, if nothing else happens, most likely we will have an expanded Medicaid role, and we will have an expanded uh, marketplace. Minsure will get uh, 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 bigger. Right. Now, Senator Benson will say one rejoinder yeah. to that is that that um, if, if Medicaid already the state is in trouble for the same reason everybody else is in trouble. There, there's uh, not a lot of economic activity, not a lot of taxpaying money coming into the coffers. So it, it's kind of hard to imagine how you can expand yeah. Medicaid at a time when the, the cost of Medicaid has to be cut by the state. So that's that's a Rubik's cube that'll be difficult to solve as well. Yeah, and we'll let uh, Senator Benson uh, speak to that in a moment. I want to ask you about uh, Bernie Sanders, who's been very critical of uh, the COBRA approach. You've referred to that, but here's a, a quote from something he wrote. Subsidizing COBRA, as Democrats have suggested in the House, would be both expensive and ineffective. Not only would health insurance corporations make massive profits off the plan, but it would also it would still leave tens of millions uninsured or underinsured. Is Bernie Sanders right? I, it depends on how they write that bill. If they write it um, that COBRA only applies to people who are um, coming right out of their jobs and not to people who have lost their connection to the workplace, um, there would be you know there would be massive numbers of people that wouldn't be covered. But even if they try to cover like furloughed workers and that sort of thing, which they may, um, there still will be employers who have gone out of business. You know, restaurant owners and other small businesses that are never coming back. You can't really have a, a meaningful Cobra system for them because there's no underlying uh, policy anymore. So yes, Cobra it will be somewhat short of a complete uh, solution, even if it were to pass. Uh, we've got a question here from uh, Mark Brock. Is our goal to preserve, excuse me, question from Patrick Conway, isn't 100% COBRA support unfair to people who continue to be employed and have to, and have to continue to pay the employee portion? There, there are going to be inequities in all of these programs. Uh, you asked me my personal preference. It would be towards an ACA type solution. I would like to see us move towards a system in which everybody has an in, their own individual policy and it's priced somewhere less than employer-based coverage, somewhere more than Medicare and Medicaid coverage. I think that's kind of a sweet spot that Obamacare is trying to get to. But, but you do see in a crisis like this, people um, are you know apprehensive about giving up that uh, employer-based coverage system. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, uh, you've talked about the ACA and COBRA, but it, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, both of these approaches uh, are oriented to sustaining the employer-based uh, health insurance model. Uh, you're talking about the ACA too? Yes. I, I yeah. think uh, there are oftentimes discussions about whether it's fair to subsidize the ACA with the tax credits that we subsidize it with. But the two responses are, A, we subsidize the employment system a lot more than we subsidize the ACA through the tax credits that employers get and employees get. They don't pay any taxes on that health care spending that's done that way. So that's a huge subsidy. So the ACA is kind of, you know, a little bit 
uh, making it more equal for people who don't have the benefit of employer-based uh, uh, coverage. Um, and then, you know, it tends to be a more efficient, you know, it, it, it depends on how you define these things, but it tends to be, you know, a, a, a more, if you have a plan that every provider is in, and, and, uh, and my boy from New York tells me you can't basically sell a policy to an employer in New York that doesn't cover most of the major hospitals, that is going to be a more expensive system than if you can say, it's like saying to Walmart, you know, you have to really cut your prices down here, but you, you have to also take every supplier who wants to be in your uh, supply chain. That's not the way to get the most efficient bargain. So somewhere along the line, I think there's going to be a, a crisis point for the employer-based system, uh, whether it's this particular crisis that that uh, uh, changes it substantially, uh, who knows? That's a crystal ball type of issue. Um, you were at the birthing of the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, 2011, and helping to stand it up. And as you remember well, the private insurers uh, we're not eager to join. And there were a number of years where you saw uh, the large insurers like United Healthcare and, um, and, and some of the others staying away and actually looking to game the system. Um, now you've got the coronavirus hitting. You've got the drop in the employer-sponsored insurance system. Do you see those insurers coming back into the Affordable Care Act and saying, you know what, this is stable, this is something we can work with? Well, your largest insurer in Minnesota, um, now that back into your own market, United, um, at largest uh, commercial insurer in the country, um, recently said in its earnings call that it was taking a hard look at the uh, individual market. United was in as many as 33 or 34 states back in 2015. Then, like you said, they pulled back on the exchanges, partly because it's just a small market. It, we're hoping for 20 million in the exchanges. It ends up as 10 million. Um, you ask any insurance person, you know, if you got tw 10 instead of 20 million, which people did you get? You got the sicker people. So it's, you know, it's been a hard kind of road for the ACA. It's remarkable that it has as much support as it does, but it keeps trucking along because that 10 million people, that's their lifeblood. Um, and, and I do think if the, if things continue without a subsidy to without a Cobra solution or something like that for ESI, you will see the large insurers come back into the marketplaces because they'll follow their customers uh, there. So that would be good for competition. I spent a lot of time in 2010 and 11 courting the big insurers because when they come into the market, they have sharper pencils. They tend to help, you know, make it a little more competitive. And the states where they're more active, they, you know, there are stronger uh, markets. But there are a lot of other insurers. The Blue Cross Blue Shield system is very strong in almost every, well, in every state been a mainstay of the exchanges. And then there are small kind of provider oriented operations like health partners in Minnesota. There are many of those kind of plans around the country too. So there are other people to compete other than the big commercial insurers. But, um, you know, we could see a rejuvenated uh, ACA marketplace. And, uh, you know, I think that that could be a, a, a good outcome uh, here, but it's far from preordained at this point. Good, let me bring in uh, Senator Michelle Benson. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Glad to be here. So I'm just curious your reactions and listening to uh, Joel Ario laying out some of the options being talked about um, in Washington, options that uh, range from 
single payer, big government, over to propping up the employer-sponsored uh, insurance, um, to look, keeping alive and expanding the affordable care, to the option of not doing anything and just letting the system um, uh, you know, work itself out. What do you think of all that? Um, well, I think we're missing some key things. This is a transformative historic event and everybody's looking at what we've always done instead of saying we are given the opportunity to think differently in this space. Um, for example, telemedicine is going to be completely transformed. There are going to be people who, who wanted face-to-face -face doctor's appointments who've now gotten comfortable with um, not just the ask a nurse line, but let me take a picture of what my throat looks like and you tell me if I need to go in for a strep test. Um, so faster approvals at the FDA. Are we looking at what happens when you get out of the way of innovation so that we don't have stage one, stage two, stage three trials costing hundreds of millions of dollars built into the cost of our our pharmaceuticals? Are we getting better at self-care? Is this opportunity in our population to say we need to be more responsible about the choices we make? Um, underlying uh, conditions are a huge factor in death in COVID cases. Um, our mental health, we've done more talking about mental health and how do we do it across state lines? How do we provide continuity of care? Telemedicine has obviously been a part of that. Um, supporting people who are going through um, addiction recovery in conjunction with mental health. As we're going through these really troubling times where we're separated from group therapy, we're separated from our therapists. Uh, we're doing these things. And then the importance of preventive care. If we can all take the lesson to wash our hands, go for a walk, socially distance, wear a mask. We are an educable population. And so what I hear is a lot of status quo talk and not a lot of we need to lead to the next thing. Why are we, why are we stuck in status quo talk? Because everybody wants to be comfortable. Um, when things are unstable, leaders have to look for what's different, what's next, not in a manipulative, um, never let a crisis go to waste sort of way, but in a, you know what, things are going to be different. We can either help design that and move towards it, or we can fight to retain what we've always known, regardless of expense, regardless of opportunity. Um, so that's, that's my frustration. Politicians um, are going to get rewarded for protecting employer-sponsored coverage. They're going to get rewarded for moving to a Medicare for all system that promises everybody everything and doesn't have to explain how it's paid for. Um, there are consequences to all of that. We know in Minnesota, we're gonna have consolidation uh, in our healthcare system once again. Uh, we had rural hospitals that were underwater even before this came. And now with elective procedures having been delayed, I'm confident though concerned that we're just going to lose some of those hospitals. They'll either be sucked up into a bigger system or they'll become um, support sites as part of a, a hospital network, but they'll no longer tr do traditional hospital care. And that will reduce access. Um, it might increase affordability 
uh, will make it harder to do preventive care or outpatient procedures. So we're in a transformative time. There are upsides and downsides, but my concern is we're not looking at what we could do next. What would be really interesting is if somebody in Washington said, let's figure out this tax issue. So employers get this great tax benefit and the cost of care, the cost of the insurance, I'm sorry, not the cost of care, the cost of the insurance under COBRA is reflective of the cost in the market generally. And so people having to pay that out of pocket, it's probably a big wake up call as to how much their employer has been subsidizing their care. That's tax deductible. If you're paying out of pocket as an individual, not tax deductible. So what if we boldly said, let's level that playing field. Let's figure out how to make individual coverage tax deductible. What if we said, you know what? It qualifies in the Affordable Care Act system. If you have a contract with a clinic that's coupled with major medical, so there's no gap, but you're defining your network and insurance companies are assuming less risk. Instead of first dollar coverage for everything you choose to do, you're in partnership with your primary care provider so that if you do have a chronic condition, they are not just doing the insurance companies check the box, but that medical professional is saying, you know what, we have a plan, let's try this, let's see what works for you. Um, we need to be thinking differently. And so I think tax deductibility, um, changing the continuum of care is a good opportunity now. And then attentive caution to the consolidation that's going to happen. Um, you know, our hospitals, uh, doctors, our providers in general can't survive on Medicaid. They may be able to survive on Medicare. What happens if we peg provider rates to Medicare rates so that they have to live with what will look like a single payer system, but individuals have choices in that system. I'm uh, excited and uh, applaud you for talking about transformation. Um, and as you've said, I think very openly, uh, change is good, but there are downsides. And I could see someone coming along and perhaps Jolario would be that person who would say, yes, but you know, you're talking about potentially destabilizing the uh, insurance system we've had since World War II. And there'll be you know, consequences to that. There'll be winners. There'll be a lot of losers. Um, there could be issues about, uh, as you said, access to uh, uh, medical care, let's say in urban, excuse me, in rural areas that are further away from, from large medical centers. Um, uh, reducing FDA and rules could have an impact on safety. It's just, there seem to be a lot of, um, you know, issues that are going to be raised by the kind of, you know, transformation you're talking about. Right. And I see somebody raised the, am I actually proposing eliminating phase one, phase two? Um, we have to work on safety. Um, but right now the FDA is a, is a drag on some innovation. And we've seen, for example, the ventilator that the U of M physicians, Medtronic, I'm, yeah, I think it was Medtronic and the U worked on together, got through FDA approval in a relatively short period of time. And not because it's unsafe, but because we said we can do this faster and we can do this better. Um, we have to look at changes that can come. How are we getting um, drugs through the FDA faster than we ever have in history? 
It's not because we said, oh, we're going to take, you know, crapshoot with somebody's life. We said, let's look at, are they safe? Have they been used in other places? And let's keep them moving as quickly as we can. And so it's not that I want us to be putting unsafe drugs in the market. Anybody who believes that hasn't been paying attention, but we need to improve while we have the opportunity. And if we're not going to learn lessons, then we're going to have wasted this opportunity. Thank you very much, Senator Benson. Joel Ario, um, sounds like Senator Benson has a revolution in mind. Well, I was like appearing with Senator Benson because she is a creative uh, thinker, and I think a lot of the ideas we actually agree on. Um, but one of the problems is her party's not necessarily in the same place as she is on some of these things. So, I give one good example. One of the really bold acts in the Affordable Care Act was to say we're going to cap that employer tax credit for for healthcare. Um, every uh, health economist in the country that I know have supported that. Um, and it became part of the law. But within a little short period, it was, well, let's just spend that now. That would be really uh, painful for some of the really, uh, you know, expensive health plans that are out there. And then pretty soon it was repealed. And I can't remember exactly how many votes. It was less than 10. It was something like 92 to four. Um, both parties, bipartisan, said, nope, can't, uh, can't cap that employer tax credit. So I, I wish there was more support for that, but there just hasn't been. And that's been a pretty bipartisan type of opposition. Uh, same thing on the FDA. The FDA was too slow on testing. They, uh, they And they've opened up now and there's many, many kind of, uh, of flexibilities out there. But now we're having some issues with kind of testing that doesn't seem terribly effective. And of course, one of the drugs that they did rush out in terms of getting supplies of it all over the country was hydroxychloroquine, you know, because uh, the president insisted on it and the FDA said, you know, we can't be sticks in the mud and we're going to get it out there. And then now a month later, you know, France today banned it. Other people have banned it. The doctors have said the president should stop taking it. So, you know, it's, it, the, the, the language sounds good. I wish it worked, would, would be as easy as some of the things that Senator Benson says, but, but you know, the FDA, the line between we have to make sure it's safe and we have to do it a lot faster. It's, it's a pretty tough line to draw in the middle there and get, and get both sides of that honored. Well, to hydroxychloroquine, um, it's been used for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis for a very long time. So we've tested it broadly in populations. We haven't tested it for efficacy in this particular disease. And so um, it's inappropriate for a politician or a president to get in the way of a doctor patient if the doctor says, you know what, I think you should, I talked to several doctors, one of whom said, don't, tr you know, don't do anything with it until it's been through a clinical trial. Another doctor said, well, it, you know what, it looks like prevent, it might be effective. And a third doctor said, well, maybe we should be doing it prophylactically. And so instead of politicians saying it absolutely should, or it absolutely should not, let's let clinicians who actually have experience with these drugs make these decisions and then learn from them. And I think you'll find a pretty broad agreement here with Joel Ario on that. Uh, let me ask you a question that was raised um, online, which is, do you think it's the government's responsibility to, uh, to ensure that all Americans have affordable health care? Is that something that the government should be taking on as a responsibility? I think it's a public good, um, just like 
we have fire trucks that show up at your house if your house shows the turn you know catches on fire um if you are having a heart attack we should have the ability for you to get access to care um but somewhere on the continuum of everybody gets everything and somebody else should pay for it we we've gone really far towards um i should never have to pay for world-class care or i should have to pay very little for world-class care it, in minnesota everybody thinks they should be able to go to the mayo clinic it's really expensive care there is really good care lower cost places in minnesota and without some signal that says you can do, and I love the folks at Mayo, they come up with innovative things. They have stepped up um, to pro provide us with lab access during this crisis. They saved Minnesota a lot of heartache um, at the beginning of this COVID crisis. So I'm not saying this to denigrate Mayo, um, but in Minnesota in particular, we have this view that they solve every problem. Um, and so you can't have the most elite care and not pay for it. So it there has like, to be some balance. It sounds, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but um, just to clarify, it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to put the individual back in this and pull the government out of this much more. Yes, there should be emergency room care for sure. But apart from that, we need to really kind of ratchet back uh, that relationship between the government and individuals. It should be more individual, much less government. Is that fair? And I mean government by what it provides, but also what it subsidizes through the tax system. Um, and I think transitioning more people to independence away from employer-sponsored coverage, less about, I think, public programs, but more an understanding. If you talk to somebody who buys their own insurance, they know very well what an MRI costs. If you talk to somebody who pays $30 for an office visit, they have no idea what their MRI costs. And that's exacerbated by a public program. And so, you know, we need a safety net. There are people who simply can't get to the point where they could afford healthcare coverage. There are people who transition out of poverty, but there are people with disabilities who face challenges. Um, they wanna work, but getting the care that they need is really going to be challenging for them unless they have, you know, a really high tier job. So let's talk about what it looks like to have more people understanding the cost of care and how they can engage in lowering the cost of care in the system. Um, right now, I, Joel talked about it. Employer-sponsored coverage and individual coverage are multiple times more expensive than government care or government payments. So where do you think the cost difference comes from? The cost difference comes from private insurers and employers pay more for the same care. And our system depends on that cross subsidy. Right. Rolario, um, you were in Oregon and back probably a couple decades ago, there was a fascinating experiment in creating what was known as the Oregon Health Plan. And the idea of it, at least, sounds similar to what Senator Benson is talking about, where he, there was a list of healthcare services, uh, and I'm simplifying, obviously. And then there was a process involved the public and obviously the legislature, 
to draw the line about how much is the state of Oregon willing to pay? And it forced these kind of conversations. Um, and, you know, I think looking back on the Oregon health plan, it, it ended up breaking down for a whole lot of reasons. But when you think about what Oregon was doing, what Senator Benson's talking about, do you see an appetite either among insurers or in Washington for this kind of transformation? I got my start with John Kitts, Albert. He's still, by the way, alive and kicking out there in Oregon, um, no longer governor. But uh, yeah, he had the notion that, you know, you give me all the money that goes into Medicare and Medicaid and the employer-based tax credits, and they, uh, uh, I'll create a system in Oregon that will be better for everybody and cheaper for everybody. He's ne He never got his full wish, um, but he did make some advances in terms of, you know, trying to prioritize services um, and that sort of thing. Uh, back then. I, I think a more interesting example, listening to the last little dialogue there um, with Senator Benson, would be that there was a, you know, a, a time oh, only 15 years ago when a Republican governor in Massachusetts said, we want to get rid of pre-existing condition exclusions, but we cannot get rid of those exclusions. We cannot say you get insurance whenever you need it, no matter how sick you are, for the same price as somebody who's healthy. We can't do that unless we expect more of the individual citizen. It's called the individual mandate that if you're going to give people insurance when they're sick, then they have to take it when they're healthy too. And that was supported. Obama campaigned against it. He literally ran an ad in Pennsylvania that said, if mandating something is the way to solve problems, why don't we mandate everybody gets a free house too, and then we'll solve the housing problem. He literally ran that ad against Hillary. He understood the politics, but when he became president, he stood up and said, you know, I can't pass my law without a, a mandate. And uh, unfortunately, that was a Republican idea, just along the exact lines of what Senator Benson was saying originally, came through Mitt Romney, but the Democrats then bought it and the Republicans took it out. That was the one thing they were able to take out of the Affordable Care Act. They weren't able to repeal the protection for pre-existing conditions, but they were able to repeal the mandate. And so now everybody gets a free ride. Man, Muhammad said, this is easy. There should be no freeloaders in our system. You have to be part of the system. You have to pay your dues. Um, but that's not, that. the Republicans got rid of that. I've got, uh, I've got a bunch of questions here. Can I roll through a few of them? Um, I love talking to you too, but I also want to make sure we get, we get in uh, some of the folks who've been uh, uh, asking questions. Chip Peterson asked, the coronavirus has exacerbated already obscene levels of inequality in the country. Um, what changes in our healthcare system could achieve uh, similar uh, levels of quality across the country? Um, and should the government take on that responsibility? Senator Benson? Well, and I think the exacerbation that's being talked about is the fact that minorities um, seem to have a higher mortality rate. And this was particularly evident in Oregon, I'm not Oregon, in New Orleans and in New York. And some of that is, as they looked in New Orleans, there seemed to be complications from underlying conditions that were more prevalent in that population, but also in both places those folks tended to be essential workers. They were healthcare workers. They were folks who had to physically go out to work every day and be exposed to the virus, which meant disproportionately they were impacted by viral load and they were exposed um, when folks 
who had the privilege of staying home and working from their kitchen table didn't get that exposure. And so these are, these are long-term protracted problems. And I don't know how you, I, it, I don't know what the government solution is to the underlying health condition um, or having minorities um, have a higher propensity for being in those community facing roles, except that we need to continue improving our education system so that our frontline healthcare workers are an even blend of people of this country. Joel Ario, what are the, what is the thinking in Washington about how to address this issue of, of disparities across race and income? Well, you have a wide range of different kinds of solutions. I think it's on everybody's radar screen. It's not that it's changed here, but the, the, the virus has exposed fault lines that have been there all along. And it's just more the way essential workers are kind of forced into the meatpacking plants, forced into delivering the mail, all kinds of things um, that give them higher exposures. And then you feel like your other people see how they're safe at home. So it's just kind of made the issue, you know, much more apparent in a broad way. I hope it does translate into some uh, action that's really part of a much broader inequality problem in our uh, society. I will say one very interesting test case on this will be, so to speak, testing. Um, I think there's a lot of focus now across the political spectrum in making sure that the way that we do testing is not just focused on the wealthiest neighborhoods and the and the you know the people who can pay the most for testing, but it's actually equitably available across communities and particularly to essential workers and that sort of thing. But I, I tell you right now, the private labs that are charging a thousand bucks, you know, where they put their urgent care centers in the well-to-do neighborhoods where they can attract people and then they can charge the insurers a thousand bucks per test. So, you know, these problems are difficult to, to solve, but I, I hope at least with testing and a lot of other broader solutions, we can start to address them uh, much better. Great. And that actually leads into um, another question, which is who's dying? Uh, we've got testing, you've got, um, you've got the antibodies test, You've got uh, employers who would like all their workers tested, such as in Minnesota, where we've got uh, you know these hot spots and meatpacking plants. Uh, you've got uh, the government wanting to do random testing of a few thousand people each day to to keep a handle on what is going on in the general population. Who pays for that? Does it fall on the employer's dime? Does it fall on um, the government? Does it fall on um, the insurance companies? Michelle Benson, how do, you, how do we sort out who picks up the tab? And we were really fortunate here in Minnesota, our individual insurance market stepped up and said, when it comes to testing, we're gonna pay for it. There's a limit as to how much they, they'll pay. I don't think $1,000 is in their realm. Um, but and we have also contracted with U of M and Mayo. Again, we have great partners. Um, there's a price limited amount on those tests. Um, we're funding a lot of testing through the Department of Health here in Minnesota, particularly for um, essential workers and critical infrastructure, our food processing plants and long-term care facilities. And, and long-term care facilities, yes, there's been a lag in how much testing has been going on there. We've got some catching up to do, but 
I think an example of how well it can work, um, the food processing plants in Minnesota that started seeing emergent cases actually reached out to public health, which got Minnesota Department of Health involved, but also reached out to their local hospital networks who had developed testing and they worked in partnership. So the business with their trusted healthcare partner and a public health um, infrastructure accomplished remarkable turnaround time on testing, got a sense of who was actually exposed, who needed to be quarantined, and we got those plants opened back up. And so we do have tested models that work and respond. Um, they just haven't, that those lessons learned haven't been cross-deployed to other places. And I, I hope think that starts happening soon. I'm just curious, do you think it's, it's, it's kind of as a general model, the idea of the health insurers picking up necessary, um, medically necessary testing uh, and other uh, uh, treatments and, and other things that's medically necessary would fall on the insurers. The employers would be responsible if they're thinking of kind of, you know, firm-wide testing and treatment. Um, and then the public health surveillance that you're talking about would fall on the government dime. Does that seem about right to you? I think it's a I think it's a reasonable balance if you're symptomatic or at risk um, that your insurance company would help get that test so that you could start getting appropriate care and treatment as early as possible. The employer has a different risk if their facility is going to get shut down because they lose 20% of their workforce. They're going to want to know early on um, who's asymptomatic but is testing positive so that they can quarantine because they want to have continuity of operations for a number of reasons. They want to continue to serve their customers. They want to continue to pay their employees and they want to continue a sustainable business model. Where public health comes in is the importance of what is our statewide picture of the, of this virus going to be. And frankly, we've done a really good job with tuberculosis and with measles in our testing, tracking, tracing to try to keep spread contained. It's going to be much harder with this virus, but public health does a good job of supporting uh, folks in quarantine, making sure that they have the right information, they have access to resources. So yes, I think there is a three-way right. partnership that can happen there. I think we've seen a few good examples of it in Minnesota and we're gonna keep getting better at it. Thank you. Um, Scott, you're someone I know who thinks about the big picture uh, as well as the details. And I'm curious how you situate this moment and if there is a lasting legacy. Uh, there's some people who think of well, the economy and our, the crisis in our health insurance system as temporary We'll, smack, we'll snap back to the employer-based uh, health uh, insurance system. We'll snap back with a lower Medicaid. There are others who have described this as an existential uh, crisis um, and uh, also as an opportunity, um, political and, and economic. The CEO of Anthem said that the economic fallout from the pandemic may drive an unprecedented shift of people from workplace insurance to Medicaid and Obama roles. Is this snapback or are we looking at an unprecedented shift? Are you asking me or is that, did you mean that for Scott? Is he on now? No, I mean it for you. Oh, I'm sorry, okay. 
I don't know. I mean, I think it could go either way. I think, frankly, the, it was, I was thinking about this with the last question on testing. There's this great scene in um, Ferrari versus Ford where the Ford Motor Company, Chairman Ford, is saying, you know, I can build anything. Uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt didn't win World War II. Ford Motor Company won World War II. And in some respects, that's actually right spot on. I wish that testing wasn't going the way that you guys were just talking about with all this complexity to it, but rather that we had a president who took charge and said, you know, if I can force the meatpacking places to be open under the Defense Production Act and to continue to produce against all kinds of objections, I should be able to force companies to produce tests at a reasonable price. And we should have a testing regime that is run in that respect. This is a, this is the future of our economy, and I think trying to do it on a cheap on the cheap and on a shoestring is not going to work. So, until somebody does take leadership in that area and other areas, I, I guess I if I had to predict, I'd say we're going to limp along, and we probably won't get the full showing up of the ESI system that some people want, and that will put you know the the, the president of Anthem there will be more accurate than wrong about how that will have more people on Medicaid and more people on the Obamacare roles. But I, I wish we had bolder leadership that sort of could pick a direction and just go there instead of get there by default. I think that's a fairly astute observation. You're basically saying we're kind of slouching towards a shift. It's not like a an intentional, well thought out decision. It's kind of inaction in Washington combined with past policy decisions and the coronavirus crisis is kind of tipping us in a transformative direction that we'll maybe see in 10 years, but we might not even notice a decision today that produced it. Exactly. And, and when you get to the vaccine and, you know, how the U.S. has shown leadership around the world in every case since World War II and we're missing an action there, you know, how is this vaccine going to get distributed around the world? Um, you know, there's, there's, we've got some real problems uh, coming at us. We have well, run out of time. I want to, Senator Benson, do you have a quick, quick response? Yep. So if we look, we came out of World War II and we started having employer-sponsored health care coverage. And nobody thought it was that big a deal. And now it is, it is the thing that is getting us stuck in the mud and we have a transformation opportunity. So there's going to be small things that are going to have big impacts as we go forward. That's, um, just, that's a really smart point. I think uh, history shows us that small changes can often have large impacts. I want to do a few things before I pass things over to uh, my partner here, Scott Kiefer from Blue Cross Blue Shield. First, I just want to mention to folks, if you're interested in this kind of conversation, we've got some terrific conversations coming up. Um, on May 28th, which is tomorrow, we're going to have a conversation about vote by mail. It's going to include Senator Amy Klobuchar, and it will include three outstanding experts, nonpartisan experts from the field of election administration. These folks are all known throughout the country uh, for their skill, expertise, and devotion to nonpartisanship. June 11th, we have Jan Malcolm coming. Uh, she is the commissioner of the Department of Health. She has been the, the captain on the ship as we've steered through this crisis. Uh, we're excited to have uh, Commissioner Malcolm with us. Uh, coming up towards the end of June, we've got Tom Emmer, who um, congressman um, and also chairs the um, 
reelection wing of the uh, Republican House um, uh, members. Uh, and obviously he's focused on winning back the majority. We are in the process of getting someone from the Democratic side, but we are very excited to have um, uh, with us Tom Emmer uh, in about a month's time. Um, I wanna thank our two panelists, uh, Senator Benson, thank you so much. We are grateful for the leadership you provide uh, to Capitol and also for your uh, really stimulating and honest conversation with us today and in the past. Thank you so much. Thank you. Joel Ario, you are the maestro. Um, and I, I think you've wore, I can't imagine what hats are left for you to wear. You're, you've worked as a consumer advocate. You've worked um, as a federal regulator. And uh, now you're uh, working uh, with the kind of nonprofit and for-profit insurers. So thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to uh, leave things with Scott Kiefer, who um, is the person I work with at Blue Cross Blue Shield. Scott, take it away. Thank you, Larry. It's, it's great to uh, be with you and sort of summarize uh, a few thoughts. I think first uh, to extend an appreciation to you and your team. Eight years in, uh, you've showed us once again that uh, policymaking isn't about bumper sticker politics. It's about trade-offs and discussing those trade-offs and kudos to Senator Benson, uh, who is, as you said, a leader and to Joel, who's been a regulator of mine, both at the federal and state level. I'm glad uh, to have this conversation with him rather than sit across the table from him as my regulator because he was pretty tough uh, there. I, I will say uh, one thing that's been really uh, heartening throughout, especially the early phase of COVID-19 is the bipartisan nature of much of what was done um, specifically in Congress with the first few bills and much of the action that Senator Benson and her colleagues took uh, at the state level, I would say that, and this is going to be an alphabetical, if we had the ARIO Benson plan, uh, we might have a path to the future. Uh, so maybe that's something the two of you could uh, talk offline a little bit about. Um, I really appreciate the depth of the conversation. And uh, Larry, as we think about future events, I think Senator Benson laid out a number of issues uh, with respect to reinvention from telemedicine uh, to mental health. And we have to think about the really unfortunate data that we're seeing around mental health, uh, including healthcare workers and those that are dealing with isolation. Um, one thing we're talking about a lot at Blue Cross, we're very concerned about those with uh, chronic and underlying conditions because even as we reopen the economy, those individuals uh, and the elderly uh, are particularly vulnerable to social isolation already. So we have to think about those issues and consequences. And also, uh, thanks for the conversation around inequities, uh, something we really need to consider carefully. And I expect that there will be a lot written about individuals who couldn't take paid leave and had to continue riding public transportation uh, especially in some of our more densely populated areas and how that contributed to the spread. So uh, some issues to be discussed at a later date, but uh, thanks for the depth of the conversation again. And I don't think it's sort of a, a one issue versus the other. I know Senator Benson has been willing to talk about, for example, the ACA and how uh, some of the subsidies don't reach 
those who are uh, doing okay, uh, maybe living with $100,000 a year in income, but we shouldn't expect them to spend 25 or 30% of their income on health insurance. So uh, a lot of issues to discuss and just uh, thank you again for being a small part of that today. And thank you, Joel and Senator Benson. Thank you, Scott. I wanna thank all of you for joining us. If you're interested in this program, it is available online. Uh, you can get the recording of both this event and our past events. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.